were very close to me and we uh, loved each other dearly. We had uh, uh, great times together. I have nothing but good memories of my life. I uh, was uh, uh, in Sunday school, expected to be in Sunday school very regularly. And uh, if I didn't, my, uh, my sisters were the ones that uh, picked on me and told me I should be there. So we were in Sunday school uh, every Sunday, except in 19, uh, well, let me just put it this way, when I became eight years old, I talked my dad into allowing me to go to the field with him on a Sunday, so I missed Sunday school and uh, was to go to, to out to the uh, wheat field and we were gonna bind some wheat. Uh, in those days, we had a binder that was pulled by four horses uh, alongside each other, and uh, uh, I was to ride on the outside horse, which was the lazy horse, and I was supposed to make him do his job as as a, uh, a, a worker. Uh, the inside horse of the four was a bronco, and uh, at the time, my dad uh, had to get off of the binder and uh, get out and look at the the uh, binder and, and fix it. While he was doing that, I got into the inside horse, and I don't know why, but I got went around to the inside horse, which was next to the uh, cutting uh, bar on the binder. And uh, the horses, when I got on that horse, he didn't leave me, let me stay very long, and he he uh, took off, as did the rest of them, uh, bucked me into the cutter cutting bar, and uh, just pretty much chewed me up pretty bad. Uh, they put me in the, uh, the ambulance after they had stopped the bleeding, and I was uh, moved to Lincoln, Nebraska, where I then was uh, taken care of for a while. A children's hospital in Omaha uh, then accepted me uh, in there, and I had three operations on my left leg. I, uh, the first amputation was at my ankle in an effort to, to keep as much of the leg as possible. Gangrene was in my leg, and, and uh, it took, uh, it moved faster than they expected it to. They next tried to save my knee, and uh, so that was the second operation. They still didn't get it. Then they decided they better get at it and get the full leg. So I have an eight-inch stump, and I'm thankful for it. Matter of fact, I've had a lot of fun with my uh, artificial leg. It hasn't been a bad problem to me. I, uh, I'm sure it saved my life all of these events that I just explained to you, and uh, the uh, prayer that followed this accident was very significant. I, um, I began to pray earnestly that Christ would, would show me how to uh, accept him and become a Christian. So I prayed that every day. And, and, uh, uh, it became probably a little boring to the Lord to see me continue to call, call on him to help me along. 
I, uh, several instances in my uh, walk then was I went to a old-fashioned revival meeting and uh, I, uh, the, the minister uh, the first day asked, is there anybody in this room who have sinned and uh, want to be forgiven of their sin? And boy, I just got right up and went in there, and up there, and uh, said yes. The next day I went to the meeting. He says the same thing. I must have sinned that day too because I jumped right up again and away I went, away I, uh, so I, I, I figured that at that point uh, I would be walking up forward every day I went to church because I sinned uh, undoubtedly every time before that happened. So that's kind of uh, how the, all that happened with my um, walk. As I did that, uh, at, after those that revival meeting, and then the Billy, then I went to a Billy Graham film. Uh, not too many years after that, the Billy Graham film was Mr. Texas, uh, and uh, it was probably at that time that I realized that uh, I needed to believe in Christ as my personal Savior in order to be saved. So, so uh, that probably was the time that that it happened. I don't know when it happened for sure, but I can th uh, say this, that if you want to think about it, was was I saved when Christ, uh, when I prayed to Christ that he showed me when to become a Christian? Was I saved when I went to those revival meetings? Was I saved when I went to the Billy Graham film? Or was I saved when I went to bed one night ask Christ to uh, come into my life. I don't know. And really, I don't care. The important thing to me is that he did, that I am saved. And I'm so thankful that he guided me through that and, and that I'm where I'm at today. There's two uh, verses that I uh, feel that's very important in my way of salvation. The first being John 3.16, which we've all heard. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And, and there's two things I think are important, certainly to me, about that. The first one is that, that uh, Jesus is God's Son. We wonder, who's God? You know, well, that's... The, that, to me, it was very significant. But the most important, probably, of that verse is believe, the word believe. What does that mean, to believe in Christ? Does that mean that he's, mean that he's God? That, you know, where is that? Well, uh, later on in life, and you'll find this happening in your lives too, uh, the First Corinthians 15, 1 through 5 says uh, that, that Christ died for us. He suffered and died. He arose from the, he arose. He went into heaven. Then later on, we find, he went to prepare a place for us. Uh, all of those things are, are significant to me and have meant uh, so much as I've walked my life. Now, there was two other parts of that prayer I told you I prayed for, for uh, 
salvation that he showed me. I also prayed. I was from a poor family. I had an artificial leg, and I was worried about my job. Was I going to get a job that, that gave me uh, uh, sustenance to live the rest of my life? Was I going to be able to do that or not? I had a Kiwanis club in my little hometown, Fairbury, Nebraska, about the size of Ephrata. And uh, the Kiwanis club kind of guided me through my high school years. They uh, asked me to be a junior Kiwanian, and uh, they saw to it. I didn't get good grades, but they saw to it that I studied. And I made it through there, believe it or not. After that... Uh, they, I heard that I was being given a, a, a free ride to college through the state. The state offered to take crippled children in those days to college, through college. So I went to a junior college for two years, and then I graduated from there and went on to, to Lincoln, Nebraska, to the university. After that, I farmed for two years. And, and uh, uh, then not too long after I started farming, a telegram, in those days we conversed with te by telegrams, and I got a telegram offering me a job in Riverton, Wyoming. And the job was to be in a laboratory. I went to, uh, bought me a car, my first car, was after I was out of high school and college, and I went to... Uh, Riverton, Wyoming, and I had probably another uh, thing that God gave me as a boss. He was a, a retired uh, a Navy man, officer in the Navy. He liked me, and uh, the only, I can't tell you why he liked me, except I did like to work, and I think he figured that, that that's the guy I want. So, I worked for him for three years. After that three years, he moved to Ephrata, Washington, my boss did. And uh, in doing so, uh, he was developing a laboratory. He called my boss up here uh, in Riverton and said he'd like for me to come there. And so I, uh, through some uh, things that happened there, I accepted that job. And that brought, took me to uh, a position that, where I was uh, earning more money than I had anticipated in all of my life. So uh, I had a tremendous job and I had a tremendous boss. God, in my opinion, guided me right on through to get, it, get me the job that I had prayed for. Now, I then had a a third prayer, part of my prayer, was, and you might think this a little bit selfish, but I asked for a good-looking, <laughs> excuse me, I asked for a good-looking Christian woman <laughs> to marry and that I would raise a good Christian family. And in, in doing so, uh, uh, I don't really even have to tell you uh, that that was another certainly big answer to prayer. Barbara was very instrumental in helping me to grow spiritually. She plus our first pastor in in uh, First Baptist, whose name was Don Stoops, 
uh, helped me grow spiritually beyond compare. And so uh, I give them the two people here on earth that, that uh, helped me to grow spiritually. And all three of those prayers, to me, are, are God's doing. I have no doubt about that. Uh, he led me through a life that that uh, I would never have ever dreamt about. I've seen different parts of the world uh, because of uh, various uh, assignments that have been given and so, so on. However, that's just a part of being a Christian. The other part that's significant to us is that that how are we going to grow spiritually? There's two verses that I like. The first one is tremendously hard to remember, and that is, wait on the Lord. Four words. And that sounds a little bit funny to you, but we so often try to live on our, by ourselves or by our own thinking. God guides us if we let him do it. And, and that ver verse says to me, just wait, Bill, I'll be there for you. It was in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. And that says, says this, Therefore, my beloved brother, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for your labors are not in vain in the Lord. Uh, that is a true statement from everything I've read in the Bible. Uh, there are there are things that happen to us that are good if we rely on working for Him, doing our things, and it's made made life actually fun for me, also. So, in summary, uh, my three phrases phases of my prayer have been answered beyond my I, what I can can ever imagine, and I am blessed because of it. I am looking forward to being with the Lord, and I hope you are too. Thank you. I'm 47 for Grace Point, so we could go places, but of course they've taken all of those out of service now, and uh, so we can't get that. And I would like to take us uh, to the Black Hills of South Dakota. Uh, because there, obviously, we would go to Mount Rushmore. And many of you have been to Mount Rushmore. I've only been once, actually, in all my travels. I used to make fun of the Dakotas until I went there. And uh, there are some beautiful parts of the Dakotas. You have to look for them, but they are there. And one of them is the Black Hills and Mount Rushmore. And I was reading about uh, Mount Rushmore again. I, we are all very familiar. The sculptor, of course, was Gutzon Borglum. Gutzon Borglum. And, you know, he never finished that work. If we were to go there, if we could go there this afternoon, we would see that uh, the bust of George Washington is much more developed than the other presidents that are there. And it was Borglum's plan to finish that sculpture down around the chest area of each one of those figures, those presidents that are uh, there on Mount Rushmore. And obviously he didn't get to spend it because he passed away. He didn't get to finish it. His son took up the task and uh, didn't last very long before he, too, gave up. Uh, he ran out of money and uh, was no longer able to work on that great monument to the, some of the presidents of the United States. Well, millions of visitors go there, but yet it stands as a monument, really, to an unfinished piece of art, isn't it? An unfinished memorial. 
And maybe that's fitting because our country is unfinished in that sense. We're still proceeding along. I was also thinking of uh, Stuart Mill's uh, portrait of George Washington, probably the most famous portrait of our first president, the father of our country, and it's unfinished. You know, the bottom half is not painted. Uh, Mills, he took that uh, uh, to an extent where he continued to make copies of that painting, never finishing it, and I don't know why, uh, but he never finished it. Another uh, picture of unfinished business, if you will. Uh, there was a song uh, that was sung at a 4th of July celebration that I watched on television, and there's a large orchestra, thousands of people gathered in the National Mall, and the closing song was Let There Be Peace on Earth. It's an older song, uh, and the crowd sang it together, swaying back and forth, and the, the lyrics went something like, Let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. Of course, all you have to do is turn the channel and you can see tanks rolling through the Syrian desert and all sorts of problems. We recognize that peace on earth is unfinished business, don't we? The search for lasting peace is another bit of unfinished business. And of course, we think in the pop world, the pop star, Michael Jackson, uh, he died after great difficulty and he was on his comeback tour, which was called, he was in London, this is it, and yet later on they rushed him to the hospital in cardiac arrest, and he died unfinished business, unfinished business, there's plenty of it. I think all of us have things in our lives which are unfinished, from the very mundane to the very important things, whether it be unfinished remodeling of a house. We are on our third house, and each one of them I've done remodeling on and just wanting in my obsessiveness to make it complete, make it done. And then one of my wise mentors said, if you're remodeling a house, it is never done. And so it is unfinished business to the day that I go to heaven. It will be unfinished, much to my consternation. Uh, and there's much other things, many other things that are unfinished in life. And perhaps you have unfinished business whatever it may be. They may be very serious things like broken relationships, difficulties in life at work or school or different places. Uh, unfinished business plagues every human being. One writer said that uh, this happens all the time, and he writes, we die too young or we die too soon or we die with our work unfinished or we die with our dreams unfulfilled. And that seems part of the human condition, doesn't it? that there are things in our lives that are, never seem quite right. Things are askew, if you will, and we are struggling to finish the task set before us, struggling to live well and to be the people that God wants us to be, and yet it seems a struggle. And yet today, as we go to our passage in John chapter 19, we find the only person in history who finished everything perfectly. The only person in history to finish everything with perfection. That is an amazing, amazing thing when you think of all the people have lived before us, all the people on earth now, and not one person except one has finished their life perfectly. Only Jesus Christ we see in John chapter 19. We're doing a very brief Easter series. Last Sunday we looked at the high priestly prayer as it's called. It's, I like to call it the Lord's Prayer in John 17. Even though this is Palm Sunday, we would have to go back to John chapter 12 to read about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And so we are going to look today at the crucifixion as we look forward to Good Friday coming up at the end of this week. 
and then Resurrection Sunday next Sunday where we will celebrate the resurrection. But I wanted to spend some time on some finished business because all of us long to have things finished well, finished perfectly. If you're familiar with the Gospel of John, uh, John can be divided into two major parts. Chapters 1 through 12 is Jesus' public ministry. Chapters 13 through 21 is Jesus' private ministry. After he arrives in Jerusalem, after the, what we would call uh, a misnomer, the triumphal entry, uh, Jesus turns his attention to his disciples, to his close followers, and in preparation of his crucifixion, his death, burial, and resurrection. In chapters 13 through 21, we see in, in uh, first of all, in ver- chapters 13 through 16, there is the preparation of the disciples. It's a lengthy discourse or a teaching session in the upper room. And it's one long teaching session in those chapters. In chapter 17, as I said, he prayed uh, for himself, prayed for his disciples, and he prayed for you because he prayed for upcoming generations who would believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we looked at last week. Chapters 18 through 20, where we're at today, is the passion and the resurrection. It is about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, his arrest. And then chapter 21 of John is the epilogue or the conclusion of the gospel of the apostle John. And so we are here today and we are going to look at the crucifixion as recorded by John the apostle. The 11 have left the upper room where they uh, participated together. Jesus led them in the first Lord's Supper. He transformed the components of the Passover. It's called Messiah in the Passover, which Israel had been observing for millennia before. And every year they would observe the Passover in anticipation of the coming Messiah, the coming Savior uh, that God was going to send and promised the sin clear back from Genesis chapter 3. And so Jesus had been arrested after, after in the Garden of Gethsemane after they left the upper room. He was tried in a Jewish religious court and in a Roman civil court and then condemned to death. And so we come to that hinge point of all of time, uh, the crucifixion, of the Son of God, the one perfect being who did not deserve this, and he took your place and my place. Isaiah 53, 6 says that Jesus was delivered to death so that we might be delivered from sin and delivered to life. The crucifixion, in verse 16, it says that Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. And, of course, the Jewish, by Roman law, were not able to uh, institute capital punishment, so there was a Roman cohort with him, and there were four soldiers per, per, per victim to be crucified. And Pilate hands them over to them, and they lead him out. But crucifixion was invented by the Persians, developed by the Carthaginians, and then perfected by the Romans. It was the worst and most horrible way for a person to die. In fact, if you were a Roman citizen, even though you might be a bad, bad person, you were spared from the cross because the Romans would not crucify a Roman citizen. It was only reserved for the worst of the worst of the worst of the people there. Isaiah 53, 7, in prophecy, foretelling, foreshadowing what was going to happen in centuries future, tells us, the prophet Isaiah writes, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. He 
was led away for crucifixion. Romans 5, 8 through 11 tells us that God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was re- of his son, wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made it possible, made us friends of God. And so in verses 17 through 18, we see the procession to Calvary. We call it Calvary, and you may wonder why. Calvary is an English word which was derived from the Latin calvaria, which meant skull, and which was a a translation from the Greek crania, which is, you know, cranium, except they spelled it with a K. And then the Greek translated it out of the Hebrew Aramaic uh, language, Golgotha, uh, the place of the skull. And we see here in verses 17 that they went out and he was bearing his cross to the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. And here we know that Jesus began to carry the cross member of the cross, of uh, the cross part of, and the upright was probably already in place at the place of execution. We also know from the other gospel writers that he faltered and they pressed in Simon of Cyrene to carry the rest of it, the cross the rest of the way to the place of execution. Jesus willingly went to the place of death for us. The Apostle Peter tells us that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 9 of that book says, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, because our consciousness from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Again, the writer of Hebrews tells us, Otherwise Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but he has appeared once for all for at the condemnation, uh, culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. He was the perfect sap- sacrifice. In verse 18, it tells us he did not go alone. There they crucified him with two, two other men, one on either side, Jesus in between. Uh, they crucified him with two criminals. This fulfills three prophecies from the Old Testament. Psalm 22:16 prophesizes and foretells about the crucifixion before it was even invented. Isaiah 53:12 tells us he was numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53:9 with the wicked at his death. This is a fulfillment of those prophecies. Overall, there are over 20 different Old Testament prophecies that are fulfilled in the, the events of Good Friday, what we call Good Friday. Now, we often call these guys thieves, but they're more than thieves because they were probably insurrectionists, maybe partners with Barabbas who had been let go and Jesus taking Barabbas's place. Uh, they could have been murderers, but they were the worst of the worst, and that's why they were going to suffer such a horrible death. Jesus was placed between these two thieves, intended probably to disgrace the Lord Jesus Christ. But even in that position, the cross was fulfilling prophecy because Isaiah said he was numbered with the transgressors in Isaiah 53. So this is the procession to the place of the skull, Golgotha, and where he was crucified, where there was this uh, work of the people to crucify him. 
in 19 through 25, there's a prophetic fulfillment at the cross, more prophetic fulfillment. It penetrates all at life. Look at verse 19. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it is written, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews, and therefore, it says, many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. The three major cities or languages of the then known world, uh, Jesus uh, was presented there. He went to death for us. He's ascribed as the king, but his kingship is disputed, and yet it covers all things. When we think about it. Hebrew is the language of the religion. Greek is the language of philosophy. Latin is the language of law. And the three combined together to proclaim. Pilate had that proclaimed. When a person was crucified, they would carry a sign. Uh, someone in front of them carried the sign of what their crimes were and what they were being crucified for. And this is the sign that was nailed to the top of the cross so everybody could read why he was being crucified. Jesus' kingship was disputed. Notice in <clears throat> verse 20 through 22 that as the J Jewish people read it, as other people read it from around the world who were in Jerusalem for Passover that week, so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And for once, Pilate got a backbone, and he said, I have what I have written, I have written. And it was an embarrassment to the religious leadership of Israel. And he wrote it in the fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus' kingship was disputed, and yet he, it was written what was written. It was fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 18, prophetic fulfillment at the cross. And then 25, second part of 25 through 30, there's proclamation. We see Jesus making proclamation on the cross. First of all, he honors his mother. And there's a courageous woman at the cross. Look at uh, verse, excuse me. Let me back up here. And verse 23, the soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts. And they, they gambled over the tunic, which was seamless. This tunic was similar to what a priest would wear. And so Jesus Christ was the great high priest. And it's the fulfillment of this prophecy that they gambled and divided his garments up because a person who was crucified would be stripped of their clothes. And then the soldiers, the cohort, would gamble or take them or divide them among themselves. And then Jesus makes this proclamation at the second part of verse 25. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clophus, and Mary Magdalene. These courageous women, if you read through uh, this Passion Week, you notice that the women, they were the last at the cross and the first at the tomb. Isn't that interesting? And these four women stood by the cross. His mother Mary, his mother's sister Salome, the mother of James and John. We know that from other gospel writers. Mary, the wife of Clophus, and then Mary Magdalene. And so these are the women that are there, along with the Apostle John, because it says, and the Apostle that he loved. And this is identified as John himself. And Jesus honors Mary. And in this respect, he, sa he tells them, uh, when Jesus saw his mother and disciple whom he loved standing nearby, verse 26, he said to the mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciple took her into his own household. And so he made sure she was cared for. There are seven statements recorded in the Gospels that Jesus made uh, as he was hanging on the cross. And in Luke 23, we know he said that, uh, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Uh, 
uh, the believing thief, thief in Luke 23, where he told the thief that believed in him, today you will be with me in paradise. Here in John 19, his words to his mother. And then Matthew 27, the fourth or central declaration, where he cries out, my God, my God, why have thou abandoned me? And the last three statements he focuses on himself. Here in John 19, his body, his soul, and his spirit as he gives up his spirit. Jesus knew all was completed. In verse 28, he says, And this Jesus, knowing that all things had been accomplished to be fulfilled in Scripture, said, I am thirsty. And it tells them that uh, they put up this sponge full of this sour wine, this watered-down wine. But then Jesus said in verse 30, when he'd received this, he said, It is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That word finished is tetelestai, is the Greek word. It's also used where he said in verse 28, all things had been accomplished to fulfill scripture. Jesus knew it had been completed. He knew that everything was done. He had finished the task that had set before him. That word tetelestai is his final cry of victory. It's in the perfect tense in the Greek language, and the significance of that is that the perfect tense speaks of action that has been completed in the past, but its results have ongoing effect throughout all of time. If it was simply past tense, it would just look back an event and say, this happened, but the perfect tense adds the idea that that happened and is still in effect today. That's an important distinction to remember. When Jesus cried out, it is finished, he meant it. It is finished in the past, it is finished in the present, and it will continue to be finished in the future. He did not say, I am finished. He said, it is finished, meaning I have successfully completed or finished the work that the Father has given me to do. He left no unfinished business behind. He finished it perfectly. And he willingly gave up his spirit. Notice he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He was the one who determined when he would physically die, not the the people on the ground, not his persecutors, uh, but uh, he said it is finished and it was done. It's a word that was used in everyday life in those days, in that day and age. A servant, when they would report to their master after they've completed the work assigned to them, would say, I am finished. A priest examining an animal sacrifice to find out if it was faultless would reply, it is finished, it is good. Jesus, of course, is the perfect lamb of God without spot or without blemish. When an artist would finish a work of art or a manuscript, they might say it is finished. The death of Jesus on the the cross completes the picture that God has in mind, that he has been painting, the story that he has been writing for centuries, because on the cross we understand the ceremonies and the prophecies in the Old Testament. It was the fulfillment of that. And so what was finished? That is the question. When Jesus said, it is finished, what was finished? That is a good question. I got on an old classic commentary. It's Matthew Henry's commentary written uh, about 300 years ago. And it is a great commentary for his day and age. But he writes about seven things that were finished or completed when Jesus cried out, it is finished. First of all, the malice of his enemies was finished. By nailing him to the cross, they had done their worst. There was nothing more they could do to the Son of God. Secondly, the sufferings ordained by God were finished. 
Many times during his ministry, Jesus spoke of the work that he was sent to do and that the hour of trouble was coming. Those sufferings were now finished at the end. Thirdly, all the Old Testament types and prophecies were fulfilled. Matthew Henry lists a number of the examples. He had been given vinegar to drink or sour wine, uh, Psalm 69:21. He'd been sold for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11:12. His hands and feet had been pierced, Psalm 22:16. His garments had been divided, Psalm 22:18, and his side was pierced. Zechariah 12.10. And there are many, many other, as I said before, there are some 20 identifiable Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in this time of crucifixion. Fourthly, what was finished was the ceremonial law was abolished. The Mosaic law, as Romans 10.4 puts it, Christ is the end of the law. It finds completion and fulfillment in the perfect God-man. He's the only one who could keep the law perfectly, and he came to replace it. All the Old Testament rules concerning animal sacrifices are set aside. The rules and regulation concerning the priesthood are out of date because the greater high priest has now laid down his life for his people. The laws pointed to the cross, but once Jesus died, there no longer had any need for them. The mosaic economy was dissolved to make way for a better hope. Fifthly, the price of sin was paid in full. You remember the words of John the Baptist back in John chapter 1 when he saw Jesus? He said these words, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There is nothing so ugly in your life or my life, nothing so bad and terrible that Jesus Christ didn't pay it all. His life was now finished. He cried out, It is finished. He only had a few seconds to live and all that had been done and had to be done, was fully accomplished. Seventh, the work of redemption was now complete, and this is the major meaning. Matthew Henry, again, expands on what Christ's death accomplished in four statements. Full satisfaction for sin, fatal blow to Satan, fountain of grace open that will flow forever, foundation of peace laid that will last forever. Romans 8.32, the Apostle Paul tells us, if God is for us, Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? There's at least three things, many other things we need to remember, but at least three. Since Jesus paid in full, to tell us thy, paid in full, is the work of salvation is now complete. The debt was paid. The work was accomplished. It was finished. The sacrifice was completed. And in that perfect tense verb, it has ongoing results. It means that when Jesus died, he died once for all time. The sacrifice was sufficient to pay for the sins of every person who lived, past, present, and future. There is no plan B. Plan A of Jesus Christ, it is finished, is enough. Secondly, since Jesus Christ paid it in full, all efforts to add anything to what Christ did are doomed to failure. The human condition is that we have to work for something. We have to do our part to receive something. And that's the crucial point because sinners often think there's something they can do or must do in order to be forgiven of their sin. But Christ's death provides and proves the opposite of that thinking. No personal amount of 
Reformation, no matter how much you clean up your life, no baptism, no acts of bravery, no acts of kindness, no religious activity of any kind can help a sinner take even the tiniest step towards heaven because it's already been done. Jesus Christ, his blood has paid the price on the basis of his death on the cross. Jesus died for us. There's nothing that we can do or will do that makes the slightest difference in terms of what Jesus Christ has done for salvation, forgiveness, being declared righteous, and acceptance before God. Uh, When it says paid in full, Jesus meant paid in full. And since Christ paid the debt, the only thing you can do is accept it or reject it. Accept it or reject it. There's an old, old hymn. uh, I've not heard it probably since my youth. Uh, by Charles Bancroft. It was written in 1863. The title of it is Before the Throne of God Above. Uh, It was kind of reformed to a Celtic uh, melody a number of years ago. But the second verse reads like this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all of my sin, Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Did you get that? For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. When we get to that last sentence, we would want to stand and cheer uh, because the whole hope of heaven... God is satisfied to look on Jesus Christ and pardon us. And that's the gospel truth. Jesus died. God is satisfied. It is finished. Do you believe it? There was once a rather eccentric uh, minister named Alexander Wooten. And he was approached. It's recorded by a flippant young person one day who asked, What must I do to be saved? Sounds a lot like the rich young ruler. But Alexander Wooten didn't even look up, and he said, it's too late, and he went about his work. The young man became alarmed. Do you mean that it's too late for me to be saved, he asked? Is there anything, nothing I can do? Too late, said Wooten. It's already been done. The only thing that you can do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. We thank you as we have briefly looked at this very full chapter Uh, that there is so much here and the wonder of your grace and mercy. And Lord Jesus, thank you for saving us, taking our place on the cross of Calvary, for going through the humiliation and uh, not only the, the physical death, but Lord, the separation from the Father and bearing the sins of the world upon yourself. Thank you. And it is so deep and so wondrous that we cannot comprehend it fully. And Lord Jesus, thank you that you uh, rose again as we celebrate this week and this next Sunday uh, from the death, gaining victory over sin and death, and you ascended to the Father, and you are preparing a place for your people there. Lord, this morning I pray for anyone within uh, this room and in the sound of my voice that uh, they would recognize that uh, they have a, can have a future and a hope by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of us who are believers, Lord, and maybe have been in church all of our lives, that a very familiar account would not be familiar, that we would be staggered again by your grace and by your wondrous mercy that you have poured out in this plan of redemption. I thank you for this morning and each one here in Jesus' name. Amen.